You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jennifer Egan is the author of The Invisible Circus, The Keep, Manhattan Beach, a short story collection, Emerald City, and A Visit from the Goon Squad. Her new novel is The Candy House. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. My pleasure. You know, one of the things I thought as I was reading this book was that, and this is (laughs) weird, but all species by virtue of their experience of reality, try to communicate that experience of reality to one another. I mean, bees dance, dogs howl, humans started speaking, but that wasn't good enough, so they had to write it down. And then after writing it down, they had to like maybe add some music and sing it to convey those emotional nuances that don't come across in just the words. Then they had to make movies. And... and this book is about that kind of experience of reality. Uh, so talk about, between this and the Goon Squad, you do something very interesting. Um, they're both novels, and they both, but they both are a, a kind of novel that I've heard termed a mosaic novel, which is, a, a, as uh, Kurt Vonnegut put it, there are novels unstuck in time. So talk about experiencing a novel unstuck in time as an author. It must be a a, a very unusual experience. Well, it's interesting. With A Visit from the Goon Squad, I did not realize that I was not going to be using chronology as an organizing principle. When I wrote the book, I thought it would go backwards in time. So I was I was working away with a sense of that girding uh, because chronology is a very comforting <laughs> structure and, and not having it can feel very, uh, one can feel very untethered. Mm-hmm. It was only when I read the chapters in that backwards order because chronology is very unforgiving if you're going to adhere to it 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 has the last word and when i read the chapters in that order i found that the book didn't gain any momentum or tension in fact it seemed to kind of lose tension as i was reading and i thought okay this is really not at all what you want um so i thought okay my structure is working against me here what what structure am I going to employ? And in a way, I ended up using a much more intuitive structure, which is just curiosity itself. What are we curious about having just read what we've just read? And in a way that was much more true to the methodology that made the book, which I didn't write even in that backwards chronology, but which I wrote following the thread of my own curiosity, seeing someone from the corner of my eye or hearing about a situation from, from you know, a, a distance and then zooming in and rendering that from a deep inside perspective. So with The Candy House, I knew, you know, I didn't want to write just an echo of Goon Squad and I didn't even reread Goon Squad until The Candy House was almost done. In fact, I made a number of factual errors that I had to correct about people's biographies. But I did know that that the basic structural approach would be the same, i.e. each chapter would be about a different person. 
each chapter would stand completely on its own. And then the most important thing, which is that each chapter would have its own genre, really, its own vibe and mood and tone. So I knew that. And I also knew that I, it was not going to be chronological <laughs> because I had tried that once and it, it really was a kind of a non-starter. So I just followed my curiosity and wrote the material. But the question of how to structure it was was an ongoing question that I only came to understand the answer to toward the end, as with Goon Squad. But the difference was I didn't have an, a, a set of training wheels structure in my mind. I just accepted that the work itself would tell me how it needed to be structured. And ultimately, it did. You know, uh, the other kind of uh, storytelling technique that this brought to mind was the oral history. And in that, it puts together different things. I mean, in a sense, like Dracula, where you have uh, diaries and, and stories and, and newspaper clippings, and the reader is given the unique and really joyous task of putting it together. And that's one of the things, I think, that makes this novel so much fun. It's such a blast to read, because as you're going, every chapter offers you an aha moment go ah oh yeah now i get it okay go oh, i cannot wait to see what's gonna come out of this so talk about that you know the oral history just in terms of a way of you know telling a, a story by letting others tell their story that's i love that you bring that up it's interesting i'm very interested in oral history as a practice I came to it not through these books, but through my last novel, Manhattan Beach, which involved uh, writing outside my lifetime, which was a particular challenge for me because although I don't use anything about my own life, myself or people I know, I really rely on times and places that I remember. So I now had deprived myself of that as well. <laughs> I had nothing. So what I turned to was actually oral history. And I got involved in an oral history project that I helped to conduct, which involved interviewing women who had worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard during World War II. And it was an amazing experience because these were women at the end of their lives. Every single one has passed away often many years ago now. And one thing I had to learn about oral history is that you can't try to guide it, that a story has its own organic shape. Just don't try to control it, which I was doing because I had a journalism background, which is all about like getting people to talk about a certain thing. I was luckily working with a real oral historian. And by watching her, I learned just shut up. <laughs> it's the easiest thing in the world. Don't say anything. Let the story tell itself. So I've gotten very interested in oral history through that. And I love that it's being studied academically. I think it's going to be ever more important as we create much less of a paper archive of our lives than people used to. Uh, very few physical letters, et cetera. So I didn't think about oral history per se as an analogy for what I'm doing here, but I think it is a very legitimate one, not just because it's an accurate description of what I'm doing, but also because I had already had that experience of working on these oral histories and reading them and in a way um, taking in almost a second, uh, an, an external memory bank that became my own from which to draw on to write Manhattan Beach. Um, so I my model was not so much the oral history as uh, a kind of role-playing 
game um, world in which we move through portals among genres. So that was more the way I thought of it, but this is all just terminology to describe an experience that, as you say, is a mosaic in which unlike things fuse into one thing. And every time we feel that fusion, hopefully that's the aha moment. You know, when I was reading this, we're talking about just the mosaic, I kept thinking about my grandmother, Grandma Kaufman, used to make quilts. And the one quilt I really remember her making was a big, big old quilt that had all these tales from the Bible, and just in little pictures. And so there was like, you know, 16 or 20 squares. And that's what this book reminded me of. It was like you had made this quilt with all these little squares. And each square told the story, but they were all part of the same story. And kind of, you know, in a sense, following the curiosity, following the thread or the import that, that you want to create. I love that. I love the idea of using a quilt as storytelling. Any kind of storytelling device is fascinating to me. And I've actually thought about trying to use oral history overtly as mm -hmm. a fictional storytelling genre. But I'm now thinking about the quilt. Um, I, you know, anything that creates a story out in unexpected ways and, you know, turns information into narrative is is fascinating to me so i'm always on the lookout and i have multiple lists of things i hope to try in the future <laughs> which some of which i still haven't been able to do so it's it's an ongoing process you know one thing that you use this word externalization it's used a lot in your book um as one of the the characters creates a way for people to externalize their consciousness. But I think too that for me, one of the things you do so well is when you're uh, imagining the future, you use those imaginations of the future. In fact, in, in, throughout the book, you use the process of externalizing by creating characters and places that will talk about the things that are happening both within us as human beings and within our world in a way that by pulling them out and, you know, if you were writing a monster story, you'd have all these monsters that would be fighting. Fortunately, you don't have monsters fighting, but it's that idea of pulling those things out and making what happens inside and turning those things inside us that we don't want to talk about, that we can't talk about, that just don't even, are hard to even think about in a sense, but turning them into story. And then when we see those stories and experience them, we go, oh my God, that's happening inside my tiny brain every day. Well, to me, that you've just beautifully described the job of fiction and, and also the reason that, that fiction still exists as a form of entertainment, despite our cultural bias toward image-based entertainment at this point, which is very, it's a very extreme bias. Like we're obsessed with images. And, you know, here's the novel who that by definition, I mean, you, there are there can be images. Look, I used PowerPoint in this from the Goon Squad. So never to say anything doesn't have anything. But in general, the novel is mostly reliant on prose and um, and our minds make the pictures. So I was very interested in 
calling attention to that unique fact about fiction in this book. Um, and, and so that, that experience of, of achieving that intimacy inside various people's brains and a lot of where we find that we know we're deep inside someone when we know, for example, what they're ashamed of, mm -hmm. what they're afraid of. As you say, those are the things we don't tell anyone. And one of the things about our state as humans that is pretty intractable, so far as intractable as death and taxes, um, is our solitude. You know, we have a whole apparatus that exists to enable us to share. We are encouraged to share all kinds of things about ourselves. And frankly, even professionally, we're encouraged to do that. I mean, my publisher basically begged me to get to finally get on Instagram. So there's pressure from every side as teenagers feel the pressure because that's where a lot of social life is taking place. If you're not on there, you're not part of the mix. So there's this pressure to share, curiosity to share, to see what other people are sharing, to be known and to know others in a deep way, which I think is a very human longing. But none of that can touch this essential solitude that we live with. And that fiction, to my mind, is the one thing that mitigates that solitude by actually giving us the experience of being inside another consciousness. Well, I would agree because in fiction, it's a contract between the reader and the writer. And the story is the place where they meet. You give us the words. We experience those words in a, a reading experience that I don't know how much we know about the reading experience neurologically, what's happening in, in our minds. But it's like your books are fantastic, incredibly well-written scripts for movies that will play inside of our brain when we read them. And there's no other way to experience it. It's much more direct than a movie. That's why... I will admit that I talk to lots of writers whose books are adapted into movies, and you know I'm always hoping for a writer that yes, I'd be great. This book would be great as a movie. You describe some really neat things, but when the movie comes along, I'm curiously under, you know, I'm a little bit okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, because it I just mean, can't compare to the reading experience. It's very well, intimate. It is very intimate. I agree. It was the word I was just going to use. There's something about taking in language that is a deeper part of our brain than the part that looks at pictures. It also is a it's a muscle. Well, it's not a muscle technically, but it's a it's a skill. It requires some habitual skill. And I think as a culture, we are falling out of that habit. And that really worries me. So if you don't read regularly, it becomes, it's harder at first to read. It's very easy to get over that threshold, but it requires a little more than just scrolling through Instagram, for example, or even watching a movie. So, but the reward is also, in my opinion, greater. And that's what you're saying. There's a, if you, if you read a book you love, it, it, in certain cases, it is kind of woven into your thoughts in a way that is inextricable and very profound. And that's what I'm hoping to provide. It's certainly what I'm looking for as a reader. Well, it's certainly discussed in this book because um, your book posits uh, a means of 
transferring, you know, uploading the consciousness and experiencing, allowing others to experience that, that consciousness. But, um, the, the process uh, of when we do this as readers, it's the reader actually, I think becomes an important part of the art form and reading is itself an art form. You have to put that kind of the same kind of effort into it as you would to create, even to write as it were, because you have to put yourself in there and experience it. And I think that that one of the things you do in this book so well is to discuss, you know, the digitization of that art form and, and you know, some of the, the pitfalls that we're headed towards at, at light speed, or we may already be there. Well, one thing is, you know, I never, I, I, I don't ever try to give warnings in my books. I'm so not interested in being taught a lesson as oh, a reader. No. <laughs> um, so I, you know, it, it's true that I, there's a way of reading this that, that it, and I think probably some of my concern as a citizen, a parent, et cetera, about technology, a concern that, by the way, everyone I know shares of every age, the worry that the kind of wasting time that we give all this time to these devices, but it feels sort of empty. So all of that is true. But honestly, what led me into the technology that I end up exploring in this book which is a device called Own Your Unconscious that allows you to externalize the entirety of your consciousness in the span of a few hours with electrodes on your head into a beautiful sleek cube that is yours alone. It requires a DNA swipe to even be um, experienced, to, to even be used. But if you want, and, and so the, the reasons to do that are many. It's people start doing it as a hedge against uh, traumatic brain injury or ultimately dementia, because the idea is you can, you can keep it updated and reinfuse healthy memory um, when your own memories have begun to fail you. Uh, it's a great way of catching criminals. Um, it, child abusers are caught because we can now look at the footage of the abuse and see who it was and what happened. So obviously this is all made up. This is a thought experiment. Um, it's, it's, it, it was fun. But anyway, there's another option with this technology, which is to share all or part of your consciousness to a collective. And what you get in exchange for that is access to all of the consciousness that already is there that other people have contributed, living or dead. You know, so if someone contributes their consciousness and then dies, it's there in perpetuity and anyone, can, it's searchable using facial recognition technology or um, latitude and longitude. Um, and that's all kind of exciting. And honestly, although there, you know, the, the dystopian aspects of this are in some ways almost go without saying, what led me into it was a genuine curiosity about what it would be like to have such a device. What, what would be the ramifications and also what would it be like to use it? And there are multiple cases where I have people using this. One example is a guy who becomes, um, he starts uh, taking various medications. He becomes addicted to opioids as so many people have. Um, he ultimately, his doctor won't give them to him. So he starts having a really, he has en engages with a drug dealer. He's a very successful lawyer. This sadly is a story I've heard many times as a journalist writing about the opioid epidemic. Um, 
and ultimately he things go very awry in his life many years pass not to give things away he has a curiosity about this drug dealer a guy named damon and he wants to know what's happened to him so he ends up um availing himself of this technology using a particular um program called hey whatever happened to <laughs> and haven't we all had that question i oh, certainly ooh. have what happened to that guy I just walked by on a stoop that time 40 years ago? <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, so he uses this. He th and the way it works is he thinks about Damon. He, th he remembers his interactions with Damon, which were very brief. They included drug buys on various occasions. He sends those memories into the collective. It swirls around looking for matches, and he's able to view snippets of Damon's life through the eyes of anonymous people who have contributed their memories. So he sees Damon as a kid. He sees him as a college student who's also selling stolen stereo equipment. And then he sees him in a penitentiary. So that what really led me into that was a genuine wish and curiosity about what it would be like to have technology like that, even just as a human, and then a corollary wish to write about a situation in which someone could find a person that they had glimpsed just a few times in their lives. And I asked myself, how can I write about that? Like, that seems really fun. Like, I love the thought of someone being able to find a person they've just glimpsed a few times, but I can't just suddenly, am I just gonna create a world in which that's possible? Like, why is it possible? Narratively, it was problematic. The machine, <laughs> in quotes, the machine solved my problem because the machine, own your unconscious, gave me a way of doing whatever the hell I wanted to do narratively with no justification whatsoever, because the conceit of the book is there's a collective consciousness out there and I can, I can enter any mind I want. You know, one of the things I think that makes this book so much fun to read is your prose and your approach to the people. You ground it in like realistic details and there's a lot of unflattering perceptions, both people of themselves and those around them. And I think that that kind of like willingness, it seems like you're very, very frank with us. And the characters are very, very frank in a way that, you know, it is extremely entertaining, <laughs> but which you wouldn't want to be necessarily on the receiving end <laughs> of that frank perception, which makes it all the more fun. You must have had a just a blast writing this and and treating these people somewhat rudely. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting. So I would just say um, I I like the frankness because what I'm interested in is deep omniscience, deep um, intimacy in the minds of characters. And if we're really going to go there, you know, there's nothing polite about our interior lives. Politeness is all about how we interact <laughs> with each other. So if I'm really going to get in there, I've got to be willing to do it because I think it's it can be a failing in fiction when when the writer doesn't go far enough. We're sort of somewhat in people's heads, but not really. Th this was a case where I wanted to go deep because I've posited a technology that lets us go as deep as you can go that to actually be another person in effect um, by looking through their eyes. So, but the one thing I would say is one thing that's always critically important and maybe the most important thing in fiction is empathy. My 
empathy for the people I'm writing about has to be ever present because if that wanes, then suddenly I'm either making fun of people or exposing people in uncomfortable ways. And that is not something I'm interested in doing because the danger is that the reader also becomes alienated and distanced from the character. So there's a, I feel a sense of a kind of loving, a, a genuine affection for everyone I write about, even as they do things that are manifestly not great ideas. Um, my job, I'll give you one, one example, which is that the, it, there's a, a guy named Alfred who oh, is I love Alfred. actually the brother of the guy who becomes the opioid, um, has the opioid dependency. And he is so sick of mass media and the, the sense of artificiality that pervades consumption of mass media. He's so hungry for authenticity that he devises this way to find it, which is that he begins screaming at the top of his lungs in, in public. And the reason he does this is that he wants to find a way to prompt truly authentic responses without hurting anyone. So he screams because it's, it invokes immediate terror in everyone. I mean, if someone really starts scream, screaming, it's a you have a panic reaction. It's impossible to listen to. It's it's it creates a moment of hysteria. But he's not hurting anyone, <laughs> so he starts doing this. And you know, I have to say, I had a ball writing about him. This is clearly an alienating practice. <laughs> but my job as the writer is to make it comprehensible that someone would do this to to justify his reasons for doing it, so that we feel the logic behind it, even though to everyone else in his life, this is about as unpleasant as it could possibly be. I, yeah, I have to say, I, we do, we love all the characters, even as there's some, you know, they're difficult. <laughs> in fact, when they are difficult, it's fun because we get to be difficult <laughs> ourselves and understand why it's a good thing to be difficult. <laughs> Also, too, you, you have a really great eye for what details to put in and what to take out. When you're writing these stories or, or, or the books, do you have to, like, pare things back? Or does, that, does this just pour from the tip of your pen? Well, my method is all it has multiple phases, which I've tried to reveal, actually, on my new website, jenniferegan.com. And what I mean by that is you can look at the first page of every chapter on the website exactly as it's published. If you hover over the first paragraph, you'll see a marked up, a typed manuscript marked up of the same paragraph. And if you hover over that, you end up back at my first draft, handwritten, as I always um, use with fiction. Um, so the way that it tends to work is that I write by hand in a very improvisational way for my first drafts with really no idea where the story is going. I, it's, it's just, I'm just generating material and trying to follow some kind of um, channel that feels promising and interesting. And just like musical or theatrical improv where people are working together to find something. You don't say, oh, I don't like this, let's back up. You just keep going. Sometimes it's working, sometimes it isn't working, just go. So I do that and then eventually I type it up, I read it through, and then I try to see what it feels like it might be. 
But up until the moment when I perform that analysis of seeing what it might be, I have been relying almost completely on my unconscious. That is what I use to write because the ideas that I have sitting in a room and thinking, gee, what kind of story should I tell are not good enough. They're not fresh enough. Maybe mm-hmm. it's groupthink. Maybe it's maybe the, it, uh, at the most surface level is where our minds are most like each other's minds because we have to work together in practical ways. I don't know the answer. All I know is that I need to get beneath all of that and and be surprised myself by what comes up. Again, this is very much what improvisation is about. And then hopefully from that, figure out what it could be and and then write into that, write toward that. And at that point with an outline and a plan and, you know, getting feedback from my writing group, whom I dedicated the candy house to because I'm so in their debt. Um, In terms of how details come and go, it can happen a million ways. Sometimes a good a good detail will be there right from the beginning. There's one chapter in this book um, called Rhyme Scheme, which is about a guy who is uh, basically a data counter and a data gatherer, a young guy. We've met him in Goon Squad um, in the PowerPoint chapter. His name is Lincoln. And that is probably the chapter, the piece of writing that in the whole of my career, I've had to revise the least. And it may be that he is the least like me of any person I've ever written about. Because I wrote that chapter in 2012 initially. Uh, I wrote a full draft. And then I was working in Manhattan Beach. I had to put all of this away, um, all of this first draft material untyped. I returned to it in 2016, typed it up. And I really, when I read that chapter, I thought, who wrote this? Because it's, <laughs> it's so number obsessed. It's so quantification obsessed. It's, it's, he has such a mathematical and, and um, statistical approach to everyday life. Nothing could be further from the way I think. Um, so uh, go figure. Um, that was a case where not many details needed to change, but very often I get it wrong. And in seeing what I've done wrong, I also am imagining how to make it better. Those are two, two sides of the same coin. If you're saying this is wrong for this reason, that's a, that's, you know, is a kind of can be an unpleasant discovery, but just at the other side of it is if I change that, it will be better. And often, you know, the right details come in much later, you know, many drafts later. So it really varies. You know, one of the characters I really liked was a guy named Tor. He was really interesting because he was the guy who was like the least documented in this uh, collective unconscious. And, but but everybody had like a, a memory of him, but they didn't know exactly what what he had done. Uh, you know, they didn't. There was no way to connect him. And I just thought this guy's kind of like Zelig, who's well, he, yeah. everywhere, but nobody knows anything about him really. Well, he's he was interesting to me. So that is the chapter that happens at the earliest point in time that I visit in either book. And it's in the candy house, which is one reason it's really not a sequel. You could also call it a prequel because we are now in 1965, which is several years before the earliest point in time that I write about in Goon Squad. And Tor is a guy. So this was kind of fun because it gave me a chance to basically look at the very beginnings of 60s counterculture. And Tor is basically a beatnik. Um, He's growing marijuana. 
um, in Eureka, California. And he's, he's trying to carve out a sort of cultural way of life that feels very new and and he brings people in to experience it and a character we know pretty well from goon squad named lou klein uh, probably the only major character from goon squad that i write about in depth in the candy house lou klein ends up amidst a couple of other guys who all go to visit this guy tor and they smoke marijuana and they have a bit of a conversion experience that Tor essentially engineers. So he is an interesting figure to me too, because I say explicitly, or rather um, the narrator of that chapter, who is Lou's daughter using Own Your Unconscious to look at all of these events through her father's eyes. She basically says, you know, Tor is the guy who facilitates experience, but never appears in the history books. So he is a kind of invisible uh invisible impresario of experience. And that that is interesting. He's someone I would be tempted to write about again because he is so impenetrable. You know, one of the things I love about this book, the, the texture of reading it, is that the fluidity with which you mix the past, the present, and the future, not only in alternating chapters, but in the same chapter where you know, things that are taking place in our present that seem somewhat futuristic. And I think you have a really good way of writing about that. It seems natural. And it just really, this is where this book reminded me of a quote from William Gibson. The the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> and we see the uneven distribution of the future, I think, throughout this book and all the various chapters where it's always poking up and, and beginning, it's like you know sprouting through the through the soil and showing its its little flowery or weedy heads. That's so funny. I mean, you're right because the, the own your unconscious in the world of the candy house was invented in 2016. So really, by the by the time by now, 2022, it's ubiquitous. It's everyone's using it. And by the 2030s, which is which are the la the latest points I write about in the candy house, social I've posited social media is over because everyone recognizes now that 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 kind of uh, exchange is very performative and narcissistic and not authentic enough. Whereas raw consciousness, well, you can't get any more authentic than that. So it's it's basically made social media um, obsolete. But it's interesting. I think one, you know, if the if a visit from the Goon Squad was a chronological, which it certainly is, in a way, you're helping me to see that something that I I think I was drawn to do in the Candy House was compress time even more, make time even more irrelevant because we're in our present, but the future is poking out, as you say, in, in the form of inventions that don't exist, but feel kind of possible, maybe because they kind of already have happened in the form of the internet, which is another question. But at the same time, what people are doing in this present slash future is looking at the past through the eyes of people who have who have shared their memories to the collective consciousness. So I find myself I found myself in this book able to occupy multiple time periods at once. And I think that was pretty exciting for me. Well, one of the things, too, that this made me think was that everyone presumes that uploading your brain and your memories 
to some kind of, you know, collective consciousness means you're seeing what really happened. But, I mean, memory, every time you remember something, you alter the memory. I mean, by the time you, <laughs> by the 12th time you remember something, it bears little resemblance to the first time and even less to what actually happened. So there's this kind of idea that we're all living in, you know, everybody seems you're getting the real raw filter and to a certain extent you are but to a certain extent everybody is just living in their own dreams i mean our dreams are that we have can only be manufactured from our realities but they're sure as heck not real but how do you tell the difference between a dream and a memory and and, and to me too also when i read if the story I read is really good, my memory of that story can be just as strong as my memory of a vacation, sometimes stronger. Well, I so know what you mean, because I find that, um, especially because time and place are my entry points for fiction, the people I associate with various times and places from my life, which are what I'm using to enter into my fictional world, those people are commingled with real people. And so it's very hard for me to set. They seem to occupy the same mental space. People I actually knew, like my grandparents who lived in Rockford, Illinois, and characters from Look at Me who also lived in Rockford, Illinois. So there's a part of me that feels like, well, if I went to Rockford, Illinois, I would really want to see Moose. But unfortunately, I invented Moose. <laughs> so I'm not going to be seeing him there. So I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> you know, um. For me, one of the things that I loved about this is the way you experiment with form, too, just in terms of the stories. They're written in very different formats, and you use a lot of, you know, visually they're different, textually they're different, and yet they all flow and hang together really well. Is that an aspect of the assembly or the aspect of because they all come spring forth from the same brow of Zeus? I mean, I only I have a list of forms to which in the course of this conversation, I have added a quilt um, that I want to use to 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 store to tell stories. And that's just an ongoing wish list of things, forms, approaches that I might someday be able to use. And I actually keep I keep actual lists of these things. Um, so there's there's that. And there will also be, you know, thoughts about times and places that I haven't really used yet that I would like to. So, for example, the punk rock moment of the late 1970s was uh, was something I had been wanting to find a way to write about for decades. And finally, with a visit from the Goon Squad, I was able to do it. But there's a lot of waiting involved because I don't have enough control over this process to say, OK, I'm going to take punk rock in the 70s and i'm going to combine it with powerpoint which i'm really interested in and boom let's tell a story it, it doesn't work i wish it did it, it the only time this stuff works is if i find the if i find a form which is the only way to tell a particular story and what i'm really saying is there's a lot of trial and error in here so, for example, there were some things I really wanted to try to use in the candy house because I hadn't used them yet really in my career. One was first person plural. So telling an entire using an entire uh, in the course of a chapter, 
only using we, not I, actually having more than one person collectively tell the story. So that was on my list. But I tried it in a lot of different ways before I found the right interlocutors who whose story could only be told in that way. And it has to go beyond just, oh, this kind of works. It has to be that the form reveals something about the relationship, about the situation of the characters and their story that would not be sufficiently present otherwise. So it's not the brow of Zeus, I'll tell you that. It's much more like um, taking swipes and swings at things I hope to do and through trial and error, eventually finding a way to do them. Another one was I really wanted to have an epistolary chapter, all letters. It's as old as the novel itself. 18th century novels, longest book written in English, uh, longest novel is Clarissa by Samuel Richardson, even longer than Infinite Jest. The entire thing is in letters. It's from the 18th century. It is incredible. It is so good. I finally read it last summer. Anyway, you know, letters are, are a delicious way to tell a story. Um, Les liaisons dangereuses, you know, that dangerous liaisons, that French um, movie that then became an American movie. It's actually a French novel told completely in the form of letters. So, but just saying I want to tell a story in letters is not enough. I mean, what story can really live in that form? I had to wait and try and fail a lot because in this, especially with Candy House more than maybe any other book I've written, I think I only had a 50% or smaller success rate of first draft material that even was viable enough to, to continue with. So that's a high failure rate. But then I always think of my son, who's a big baseball fan. Look, if you're batting 500, that's amazing. <laughs> so maybe I just need to think about baseball and measure myself using those statistics. And then maybe having to throw away half or a little more of my first draft material isn't so bad. You know, when you describe it, it sounds to me like the stories are, are like clouds that form in you, your head and you just have to wait till they actually rain out on the page in the, in the perfect manner. Not exactly, though, because that would imply that I knew what the story was, and that's not the case. Oh, well, you <laughs> so just have to know the cloud. I know the. I know. I, I know times and places. I know structures I want to try to use. Sometimes I know people I'm vaguely curious about. That's all I have. And this is why the improvisation is so essential. Because if someone came to me and said, "I, I think I'm going to write a book. Here's what I've got." A few technical things I want to try, you know, a sense of uh, a mood of a place, you know, it's going to be great, don't you think? My reaction would be, I don't know, because you haven't done anything yet. <laughs> you need to make it great, because all you've got are ideas. And so the ideas hopefully fuel a process, and it's that process itself that reveals a world that hopefully has some kind of integrity and organic power that I can then shape and, and mold and, and, and improve over time so that it becomes decent.
Well, you know, you use the word improvisation, and as I was reading the book, I was thinking this book is written like a piece of music. There are kind of like stanzas and, and, and refrains, and, and it had that feeling, you know, the flowing feeling of a piece of music, one thing following it, flowing from another naturally. Well, you know, one thing that was on my list of things that I wanted to try, along with letters first person plural and Twitter, which is another form I use in this book, was it, it just said one thing, um, use the structure of paper boats by Not A Surf. <laughs> so Not A Surf is an indie rock band that I love, or I mean, maybe you would call it alternative. Um, this song, Paper Boats, I love their music. And I was listening to Paper Boats years ago, and I found myself thinking a lot about the musical structure, which unfortunately I'm unable to describe with any sophistication because I don't play an instrument and I don't read music. But the bottom line is that in Paper Boats, the lyrics and the more conventional song aspects of it end about halfway through the song, but the music continues. And a rhythm that was deep and and almost, to my mind, inaudible amidst the, the much more conventional music and lyrics asserts itself and gathers strength and changes color, if you will. It becomes a little more dark, a little stranger. And the experience of listening for me narratively was, oh, this is what this rhythm is what the song was always about that surface stuff was just concealing it and now it's revealing its true colors and its true preoccupation and it the song goes on and on with this deep rhythm gathering strength and more instrumentation i was fascinated so i music is a gigantic inspiration to me even though i know so little about it that i can't really describe it in the end, all of this is rhythmic. You know, mm -hmm. storytelling began as an oral tradition. It was sung. Music and narrative are one and the same thing If you, on some level. In my writing group, we only read aloud. We never look at a text because the goal yeah. is to listen to the music, listen to the, the sound, the rhythm, and the language, which is the delivery, the delivery device for this storytelling. So music is very important for me and gives me ideas about how to structure fiction. Uh, music, I think, I, I listen to and compose uh, a lot of instrumental music. And I think music is a very, it is an incredible means of communicate. You communicate a huge amount of data with two notes. You just play two notes on the piano and you can convey an a series of emotions you can create in the listener a sense of a place where they heard those emotions and felt those emotions and that's just with two notes you can do that it's a very uh, information rich means of communication dense well that is a word i love because density and compression are two things that i'm always thinking about in fiction because the the job of fiction is to somehow compress all of the complexity of not only the world around us, but our individual perceptions of it into something that is small enough for a person to read and yet suggests all of that greater complexity. And that, that requires an enormous amount of density and compression. And I'm thinking about it all the time. And 
One way to achieve compression, one of my favorite ways, is to do two opposite things at one time. Mm. To, to inhabit the center of a paradox. And there were a lot of paradoxes that, that, that led me into this book. One of them was the paradox between data, which we are obsessed with as a culture, and which does describe human behavior somewhat accurately. If it didn't, companies like Google and Facebook wouldn't be profitable because what makes them profitable is the people who are paying for our data, and they wouldn't be paying if they didn't think it was extremely useful. So that that data and 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 even individually people who have fitbits and are counting their steps and they're monitoring heartbeats i mean we we use data to about ourselves to understand ourselves and yet and and i should add we are categorizable and and comprehensible through our data but we are also completely unknowable and mysterious creatures whose inner lives are invisible to each other and to some degree in 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 a way invisible to ourselves exactly. you know we only know a little bit of what we know so that paradox was fascinating to me and another a, a kind of narrative paradox that i like to inhabit and the the chapter we were talking about with alfred the screamer is a perfect example of this is something that is absolutely ludicrous and yet so somehow also logical and therefore plausible. So it's both impossible and, and likely <laughs> at the same time. And that is the kind of compression that I crave narratively because it results ideally in a kind of intensity that, that suggests the enormity of the world that I'm trying to represent. Well, I think one of the things that's at the heart of this book is this, you have the eluders and the proxies, and this idea is a perfect copy of a thing, the same thing as the thing itself. Because, well, for one thing, I mean, and just that question seems, well, of course it is. No, but wait, it's not. Because the second you've copied, you've started to diverge in time, and now they're two different things, but they're the same thing. And I, I think that that is... a a fascinating uh, subject to examine because we are now, you know, your characters are able to, in a sense, copy themselves and then look at the copy at, from out the outside. Well, it's interesting. I think about it a little differently in that the eluders are people who are so appalled <laughs> and alienated by this collective consciousness mm -hmm that now exists in which they are represented even if they don't participate in exactly the same way that even if you and i may or may not have shared our dna information let's say looking for relatives or whatever it doesn't matter enough people in north america have shared those results that we are represented in those results it doesn't we are findable through our dna whether we've shared it or not so that's an exact analogy for what i'm positing here which is that even though people may never have shared their own consciousnesses, they are visible through the eyes of all the people who have shared their consciousnesses, just as you were saying with Tor. So there are some people who are just don't want to be part of this. They don't want to be known in that way. But the only possible escape is to actually give up their identity altogether. And they so they do. They do something called eluding. And what that means is,
that they shed their identity, they take on a new identity, but they don't want people to know that they're gone because then that will be immediately obvious what they've done. So they hire what are called proxies to impersonate them online and to, um, to hide the fact that they no longer have that identity and have taken on a new one because most people don't expect to see them in real life. So there's no difference. And the proxies can be on a, on a sort of cheap level, uh, just a program that uses your online utterances to suggest, you know, to try to generate activity, discourse, dialogue that sounds like you, but the most expensive proxies and the ones who are best at it are fiction writers <laughs> because we're professional impersonators. But I'm not suggesting, I guess where, I'm, where I see it differently than you do is that I'm not suggesting that the, the proxy form, the proxy version of someone is actually them. It's just a, it's just a fake. It's a, it's a kind of, um, I mean, one person likens it to a prisoner leaving, pillow, leaving pillows that look like a, a sleeping form in, in yeah. the prison bed to give the prisoner time to effectively escape. Um, but it, I did have a lot of fun thinking about fiction writers doing that work because um, maybe because I was a private secretary is one of my many money jobs. And I did a lot of impersonation in that role, which I enjoyed and I think was able to do partly because I you know, was able to mimic the dialogue and the discourse of the woman I worked for. Um, but also because it, it is intriguing, it does raise those questions, which are very legitimate about whether we are dealing with real people when we are online. And that is actually a very uh, a serious issue. You know, the, the number of bots, impersonators, foreign entities, you know, posing as activists and all kinds of other things. There, there's so much fakery online. And so I guess I am, you know, I, I guess that is what allows me to get away with positing this. Well, a long ago, Alfred Turing posited the, the Turing test, very famously, where if you talk to a robot and you can't tell it's a robot, then it's achieved artificial intelligence. And on what has actually happened is that humans have failed the Turing test. We can't tell the difference anymore. That is exactly right. And, and you know, that may be, again, back to sort of why I have to do this, um, this more improvisational writing. There may be a way in which, you know, some of our thought patterns and even our discourse at the most surface level really has been influenced by the, um, the, the entities that we use for so much of our communication. Um, which are categorizing us, monitoring our data, and maybe on some level um, homogenizing us a little bit. That's why we need fiction like yours, so that we can. I think, and I think that's the job of fiction is to unhomogenize us, to put us directly in the minds of other people, so that we realize that we're not them, they're not us, but we make them with your help, the fiction writer. Well, I hope so. That's that's certainly the goal. And I'm grateful for any reader who engages with me and uh, feels that, that my work helps them to do that. I've been speaking with Jennifer Egan. Her new novel is The Candy House. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. It was a delight. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.